Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that would take a look at the funny side of politics, but can't seem to work out how you find sides on an endlessly downward spiral. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, Labour leader and anthropomorphised fatigue, Jeremy Corbyn, has said that the party will support an amendment on a public vote, which is great, except that no one's called a second referendum a public vote before. Is it going to require everyone doing it in broad daylight in the town square so everyone can see your shitty choices and condemn you for them for the rest of your life? If so, I'm totally in. This was big news, but actually it's still in line with what was decided at the Labour Party conference last year. May still mean that one doesn't happen if Labour's Brexit amendment gets passed, and if it does, that not enough MPs are likely to vote for it anyway, or if they did, that there'd not be enough time. Nor does it deal with the fact that every vote we've ever had is a people's or public vote, and they often choose really shitty things, so perhaps the best thing to do is let robots or animals vote, or just put it all down to a game of it dip do. Aside from these little moments where everyone pretends something positive has happened, even though it hasn't, like if someone tried to make being stuck in traffic better by shouting that, hey, the sat-nav clock has gone down now and it's only added 20 minutes onto our five-hour journey. Quit your smiling, this is all life that we'll never get back. So, apart from that, British politics continues to be somehow both incredibly boring and terrifying all at once. Like being crushed to death by a very slowly falling wall with paint drying on it. Oh no, this is awful, but also please, please hurry up and end it. Prime Minister and misshapen crab Theresa May has announced that there will be no meaningful vote now until March the 12th, meaning that after it happens there'll only be 17 days until the planned leave date and only three for any rebel MPs to prepare for the Ides of March so that they can politically assassinate an overblown leader who's abusing their power. Though of course in a Shakespeare play featuring this current Prime Minister, May would just shrug off any defections, probably not even notice any attacks and carry on like a creaking factory machine while making some speech about how friends, Romans and countrymen all just need to unite together to get her deal through. As May arrived at an EU leaders summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, briefly swapping her red lines for the Red Sea and taking more kingly tuts than the uh, endless British ones of disappointment that she's been getting, she announced another delay to MPs say on her deal, while rumours abound that she might also delay Brexit by two more months or possibly even two years. I mean, it's amazing that we're at a point where I would both agree that that is a good idea, but also, oh God, why won't it end? Won't someone just put it out of its misery? Seriously, who is directing this Brexit lark? Peter Jackson. 
Whatever happens, it's clear that parliamentary recess was cancelled last week in order for no one to do absolutely anything with their time. Now, admittedly, I cancel plans all the time so that I can sit on my ass instead, but when I do it, it doesn't mean a ton of kitchen and cleaning staff, political journalists and more all have to cancel their plans too in the hope that I may do something vaguely useful. No, more often than not, if I tell you I'm not coming out for a drink, then all parties are a lot happier. May went to Brussels again and no progress was made again, with certain rumours suggesting negotiations aren't even happening anymore. I'm starting to wonder if she's just found a quiet room in the Belaymont building that her keycard still gives her access to, as she hides in it for up to four hours at a time, breathing slowly and just scribbling on beer mats ideas as to how she can say the same thing yet again, but with 15% different words. The rest of it is all more of the same as well. Disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox announced that trade deals with Japan and Turkey won't be ready in time for the March 29th deadline. Surprise! And by not ready, he probably means he hasn't even started them yet and he spent the last few weeks shouting at Bernard Matthews products and trying to track down an 80s art rock band. Human balm cake Boris Johnson complained that everyone says Brexiteers are far right and that's a fair complaint because in his case he has absolutely no political affiliation or conviction apart from self-gain. MPs Anna, I once had to kill a dog with my bare hands, Subri, Greg, David Gork without glasses, Clark, and David Greg Clark with glasses, Gork, told May that she has to delay Brexit and that the hard Brexiteers in the European Research Group will only have themselves to blame for it if it happens, which is a stupid thing to say as they don't understand collective responsibility or individual responsibility or the word responsibility. One of the ERG, in fact, Andrew Bridgden, so named after his many ancestors who'd make dens under bridges and terrorise goats, has said that Minister who can't back government policies should resign, even though he's voted against the Prime Minister loads and is sadly still well anywhere. Now, of course, I say nothing happened, and all those things that have happened are very similar to things that have happened every single week for the last two years, but in fact, the independent group did happen, and that is one thing you can definitely say about the new political group in Westminster who are not officially a party. And while not being officially a party sounds like they could be an exciting underground warehouse rave, it actually means that they're registered as a company, which is a great way of telling ordinary people that you too are against the elite, and by the way, would you like to buy some merch and sign up for our mailing list? After a tedious launch day that mainly involved them denouncing the racism in the Labour Party before one of their members, Angela Smith, went on TV to describe Asian people as having a funny tinge, which is rich coming from someone whose pallor is mostly decomposed. After that, the seven formerly Labour MPs that announced the group were joined firstly by another Labour MP, Joan Norman Nasal Helmet for a Head Ryan, who is most well known for losing her seat in 2010 due to it being revealed in the expenses scandal that she paid a ton of taxpayer money doing up her home in Enfield, which, according According to record, she still hasn't paid back despite being ordered to. So hey, maybe that explains where the independent group will get their funding from, eh? Then next to join the Drudge Illusion were three Conservative MPs, Heidi Allen, Sarah Wollaston and Anna Subri, aka the Sugar Vagues, who proceeded to really stamp in what they all stood for by praising austerity, saying they don't want more Tories to join them as that might start a general election which would be bad, and that not having any policies is what puts them above other political parties. Sure, in the same way me not having any experience as a surgeon puts me way above other surgeons. So someone give me a scalpel, let me have a go, eh? Who wants to be my first patient? In fact, Anna, spitting image puppet of herself, Subri, said that the TIG is something new and doesn't need policies, as that's the old way of thinking. Although, based on how Brexit negotiations have gone, I'd say that's pretty much in line with absolutely everyone else. And yes, they are now referred to as the TIG, with members known as Tiggers, probably because they all bounced from their former parties and they are the only ones, with occasional friends dressing up as them but ultimately not trying very hard and leaving them to wander in the wilderness alone. 
A week later, all we know is that the independent group are against Brexit but have an office above a Weatherspoons pub called the Unicorn, which is a bit like being against cake while sitting on a cake called the Ultimate Cake. They're against racism, but only the sort other people are guilty of, that because they're a company, they're actually less accountable than recently formed the Brexit Party, and if you aren't sure what they do, then according to entirely perspex man Chuka Amuna, you should check their website, which crashed for most of the beginning of last week. Oh, and they all went for a meal in Nando's, according to a selfie on Amuna's account, where it looks a lot like Subri is upset that she had to order at the till, Angela Smith is concerned that her meal has a funny tinge, and everyone is having absolutely nothing hotter than lemon and herb. So, as I said before, nothing. Nothing has really happened. The Labour Party's response to the independent group was, as you'd expect, mixed. Shadow Foreign Secretary and Joanna Scanlon stunt double Emily Thornbury said she would rather die than join a party other than Labour, so whatever you do, don't invite her to your birthday, as it could get messy and tragic real quick. Jeremy Corbyn said that he was disappointed about the MPs who'd left and that walking away from the Labour movement achieves nothing, and considering the Tigger's current lack of policies, he's actually not wrong. Shadow Chancellor and someone who's constantly sad that the county football team he manages is always losing, John McDonnell, said that in order to deal with criticism from MPs, Labour need to carry out a mammoth listening exercise, which is one way to say you might try to address the elephant in the room. Speaking of which, Chair of Momentum and also various other pieces of clunky furniture, John Landsman, has now openly said that anti-Semitism is a major problem in the party, saying that conspiracy theorists are more of a problem for Labour than the Tories. Though, let's be fair, that's probably because it's hard for the Conservatives to have theories on all the conspiratorial meetings they're likely actually carrying out. With all that out in the open, Deputy Leader and Spongebobbing Glasses Tom Watson is now setting up a group within the Labour Party for disaffected MPs, which I'm really hoping they call Labour Pains. Yeah, I did that joke. Yeah, I did it. It's there. You're having it. The Prime Minister was less bothered about Conservative resignations, saying that it was extremely disappointing that MPs had left, which, based on her record, could well be a compliment, especially as they'd actually managed to leave something successfully. It could be, though, that May has just gutted that she had to spend £1 billion getting the 10 DUP ministers to vote with her when the 11 Tiggers have said that they'll do it for free. Oh, and Labour MP and sad Pete Waterman Ian Austin also resigned from the party, which surprised everyone, as judging by most of his views, I'd assumed he'd left years ago. He hasn't joined the independent group, though, as it's much easier not to join in the first place than try and find out just how unpopular you really are. In other news, Foreign Secretary and the man who is the entire stupidity of stepping on a rake but in a suit, Jeremy Hunt, has been trying his best to follow in his predecessor's clown footsteps by offending people all over the globe. Firstly, Japan nearly cancelled all talks about a post-Brexit deal with the UK after a letter from Hunt was taken as high-handed and appearing to accuse the Japanese government of a lack of urgency, which is a hell of a cheek from a government who's taking forever to do absolutely nothing. Then Jeremy wrote to Berlin asking the German government to start selling arms to Saudi Arabia again, stressing that if Europe don't sell them weapons, then they may turn to Russia or China for them. (gasps) Imagine that, your many children dying from someone else's weapons. What would those kids say if they knew the UK only wanted to send the £2 million of aid they've just announced and not try and kill them before they touch it so it can be reused for a Brexit no-deal situation. Ugh, doesn't bear thinking about. Then after that, Hunt, on a visit to Slovenia, referred to the country as formerly a Soviet vassal state, which, um, it never ever was. But hey, they shouldn't be offended, right, as he can't even remember where his wife is from. I mean, maybe, just maybe, this is the beginnings of Hunt announcing a beautiful utopian worldview based on him not actually knowing where anywhere is. So what's the point of borders when we're essentially all the same and everywhere is somewhere else? Or more likely, he's just going to have to start writing letters to Germany to supply him with arms soon so he can safely leave all the places he's insulted. 
In Venezuela, there have been violent clashes at the borders between Colombia and Brazil as President and angry Mario brother Nicolas Maduro has blocked humanitarian aid from coming in. I don't want to defend Maduro, but it must be quite galling being offered aid by the US who've imposed sanctions on you in the first place. Hey, you can only have this food if you beg for it. I mean, bloody hell, some people pay for that. Maduro's treatment and violent reaction to protesters has been horrific, but it seems their only other option is a US-backed intervention which historically has been like trying to help with a forest fire by cooking some marshmallows on it and then stealing anything that hasn't burnt down. With inflated gallbladder and President Donald Trump pushing for the opposition leader to take charge, that leaves the Venezuelan people with a tough choice. Homegrown authoritarian or one from abroad? Maybe they should ask Jeremy Hunt, who might be able to advise them on the best way to get shot, depending on what food they have. Lastly, ISIS bride Shemima Begum has had her citizenship stripped on account of her views not aligning with the extremely hostile values of the British government. Grape with eyebrows and Home Secretary Sajid Javid defended his decision which will make Begum stateless, which is illegal under UK law, by saying it is his job to make sure Britain is safe. So I'm surprised he hasn't tried to deport the government yet. And Labour have announced a pledge on new flexible working rights, which finally is great news for contortionists, yoga teachers and gymnasts. So, as I said, not much going on, really. Yeah, Pop Pop Rods, what's going on with you? Oh, it was a shoddy old intro, wasn't it? I am enjoying this glorious ad, wouldn't it be unusual if not for the impending doom of climate change weather that's hitting the UK in February? It's, it's meant to be cold now. It was 17 degrees in Wales yesterday, which is nuts. I'm genuinely worried people there have tried out and need to be saved by some volunteers with a squidgy and a bucket of fairly cold water. But as is often the case with things that are bad for you, like cake or having a pet alligator, um, this world-ending weather is very lovely and I happily spent the weekend doing our kids show in Canterbury at the theatre on the campus where my old university is. I mean, it's not old. I am old. Um, it is somehow not aged and that is hugely selfish of it. And then I bought some smelly cheese and no one sat next to me on my whole journey home because of it. So that is definitely a win, right? Even if the cheese was French and I might not ever be able to get it again and all the vitamin D I had means that bees are dead or something. Yeah, look, basically what's happened is I appear to now have an issue with actually uh, trying to enjoy anything right now. Apart from you all, obviously, and being a to vent this shit every week oh and my family but mainly you um thank you oh, for being all up in this show's grill again and uh, if you're new to the show um yes it is pretending to be comedy but it's largely laced with nihilistic pessimism tragedy plus an absolute lack of time and all of that um like last week's show uh, this one's probably slightly uh, frantic and all over the place because uh, it's being shouted out after a gig again uh, on the frankie ball support so apologies for an odd mix of adrenaline and um the adrenaline then slow departure that will kind of show itself over this podcast that will probably reduce in pace throughout until I just fall asleep at the end. Next week's show will no doubt be worse as I'll have done the crazy 26.2 hour show that is happening on Wednesday and Thursday this week which you can still sponsor me for if you're into that sort of thing and as a result I have absolutely no idea if I'm going to have time or energy to get a guest for next week's show either or what sort of stuff it's just going to be a terrible state. Um, but let's face it, there's also a last chance that absolutely nothing will have happened in the news anyway, so maybe for next week I'll just bang some spoons together and shout animal noises for an hour instead. You've got that to look forward to. Um, oh, and obviously there are things happening all over the world, uh, and you may have noticed an entire absence of US or at the moment Venezuelan or anywhere else and bits on this show, and I will aim to get back on all that as soon as I don't have to talk about things happening with Brexit that aren't actually happening. So, I don't know, what, 2052? Somewhere somewhere around then? Ugh. 
Um, thank you for all the reviews that were posted up on iTunes last week. Only 63 needed uh, now to hit the big 200 reviews. And there are at least 64 of you that listen to this um, that haven't reviewed it yet. So if you have a spare minute, please do head to your podcast app of choice or any that have been oppressively forced on you by some weird pod authoritarian and hit the five stars and write something should you feel compelled to. Um, it, it really is a big help and it allows me to pretend that it's worth doing this instead of, you know, it just being an excuse to avoid telling my daughter to stop eating her socks all day. Thank you also to whichever of you donated to the Kofi last week. Um, I do know who it is, but you put anonymous as your name, so I will never reveal it to the general public. Ha 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 But if you too can afford to buy me a coffee or drink for knocking this crap out every week, then please head to ko-fi.com forward slash bro where you can do a one-off or monthly payment of a few quid or patreon.com forward slash bro which is the same but in dollars and so apparently more annoying. I've popped the long show sponsor link on the podcast blurb too um, if you want that as well and of course if you can't do any of those things just write the podcast RSS feed all over your walls at work like a mild version of The Shining until everyone you know subscribes out of fear. I meant to plug something uh, in this bit. I know I was meant to do it in the admin, but I can't remember what it was. So instead, um, the Kids Politics Show, uh, How Does This Politics Thing Work Then, is next on at the Waterman's Arts Centre in Brentford on March the 10th. Um, and based on how the last few have gone, we did Pool on Friday and Canterbury on Saturday. Uh, they were so much fun. Weirdly, so far, pretty much the children have mostly elected Labour or Lib Dem and Green Coalition governments in the show, which either means none of the UKIPers can persuade their middle-aged children to come along, and <laughs> being mildly ageist, um, or the next generation are going to sort things out as long as they can swim and pollinate food by themselves but then their politics are also often things like give me all the sweets so we're probably still fucked um, this week this week's podcast is pretty much all about labour uh, I mean you know it's sort of a week off everything else so um, I interviewed Professor Stephen Fielding who knows all about labour history and uh, told me all about what these immensely dull party splits mean other than you know I just have to shout shut up shut up at even more parties on the television then I'm taking Taking a uh, just facts and figures update look at anti-Semitism in the party, which sounds as awful as it is, really. Um, massive lack of jokes towards the end of that bit. And if all that hasn't already made you switch off and have more fun punching a blender, then I'm afraid there is the teeniest little bit of this as well. Sorry. Brexit I wasn't going to do a Brexit fallout this week because the news about anything happening has been slower than news on a royal wedding or royal baby or royal pet's trip to the vet or royal someone's got some new shoes. Lots of pundits trying desperately to say Mace hasn't done anything over and over again before asking each other, what's her strategy? Why doesn't she want to vote? Why isn't she doing anything? And all the guests have to find ways of saying because she's an absolute shitbag or because she can't do anything because you've already said what she can do and she won't do it because she's a shitbag in as many different ways as possible. Then every PMQs or parliamentary jerk circle seems to involve Corbyn or someone else saying make sure there's no no deal and then May saying there's only two ways to stop a no deal which both involve things that can't happen but I'll insist can because I'm a shitbag. I'm now pretty sure that this is all just some endless bad place torture that we're all deserving of. But thanks to Labour, who obviously knew this podcast was all about them this week, I just need to quickly mention what has happened with Corbyn's announcement of a second referendum. Or, as you know, I like to call it a secorendum. And they're going to call it that, huh? That will make all the difference. All right, what about Twexit? What about try again, dickheads? I mean, any of those would be great. Thanks. So Labour's backing of a second referendum uh, will only happen if their other Brexit offers to the government get rejected, which is what they decided way back in their conference last September. But hey, it's easy to forget when every day 
day seems the fucking same. Labour's Brexit offers, or broffers as no one says, are number one, May's withdrawal agreement with a soft Brexit political declaration and a legislative lock ensuring things like workers' rights, etc., all of which would require an Article 50 delay. If they don't get that, number two is May's withdrawal agreement with a second referendum, which again requires a delay. Or, number three, just an Article 50 delay. Just it. Just that. I mean, imagine it as menu options at a really awful fast food place. Do you want fries that taste like shit, with an assurance the sauce won't be as bad, and it'll take even longer than you expected, which is good, but ultimately also exhausting? Or, do you want fries that taste like shit, and everyone who said they should taste like shit gets to say exactly how shit all over again before you eat them? And yeah, that'll be done by, I don't know, next year. Or, or do you want to just wait around for a while until you die? Anyway, there are currently only enough supportive votes in the Commons for a number three, a delay to Article 50 to happen. So that'll probably be what happens, and then we'll have even more months of absolutely nothing happening until they have to delay it again and again with the hope that eventually the continents as we know them in today's world will no longer exist, and Brexit will be lost as Pangaea 2 causes a strong unity between what were the British and the lost city of Atlantis. Good? Good. <laughs> It is undisputable that in the world of politics, the British Labour Party are an incredible force of opposition. Unfortunately, as has been shown again this week with the split in the party, that's mostly as in opposition against themselves. You know, rather than the Conservatives, which is quite a feat considering that this current government wouldn't only struggle with organising a piss-up in a brewery, they'd somehow book a venue to host it that's never even heard of booze before and has taken its piss-up terms and conditions from a dog's collar. The MPs who left Labour have blamed it on the party's poor record at dealing with incidents of anti-Semitism, and that's clearly the most prevalent factor for some of them. But for others, it seems they've really not been very keen on the more left-wing stance that Jeremy Corbyn has taken the party since he became leader in 2015. Labour has, as is regularly said by prominent members, always been a broad church. But with an increase in membership and divides about political alignment, Brexit and racism, the party's kind of become more of a lardy cathedral in recent years, or even a Vatican. When on one hand you have those who believe Labour is back to its original roots and Jezra is some sort of immortal dishevelled courgette saviour to rescue them from the Conservatives' policies just very, very slowly and he'll wait until no one's looking or a rainy day or something. On the other hand, some are livid that he's pushing for Brexit, say he's a veritable modern-day Herod and like austerity so much that they're in a new group with those who voted for it. But with eight Labour MPs splitting and forming the policy and personality-free independent group, and with more threatening to leave, it's all very past the kiss and make-up stage, and if anything, that would probably just lead to more trouble. So, what happens now? Does the split from Labour hamper their future election chances? What does it mean for UK politics overall? At what point will another Western power intervene and try to provide humanitarian aid? Well, it turns out it's not the first time there have been splits in the Labour Party, nor is it the first time the question of how left-wing or centre-based they should be has come up, or the first time racism has been an issue. In fact, such is the course of time that sometimes it's just best to look back in order to understand how we're stuck in an endless time loop of depressive political stupidity. Sorry, I mean in order to look forward. So this week I spoke to Stephen Fielding, a professor of political history at Nottingham University, who happens to have a specialist interest in the history of the Labour Party and its ever-changing, shifting nature as a political xenomorph. Stephen very kindly let me ask him all about what we can learn from the last time this happened in the early 80s, if we've seen all of it before, and if it's true that the party got their name from the French labour, which means the stuffed, which is why they regularly are. OK, I didn't ask the last one, but it is interesting. It's labour, it's, it's sort of... No, you're right, it's not, not remotely interesting. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this chat with Stephen. Here it is. I'm sure you've answered this 600 times this week already, um, but are we uh, seeing a repeat of the SDP and the Limehouse Declaration uh, with the independence group splitting from Labour uh, this week? Has has all this happened before? Well, it in a way, 
say yes. And lots, lots of people are making the obvious comparison um, with the SDP because in some ways there are, there are, there are like loads and loads of parallels. Um, I mean, just like in the 1980s, early 1980s, the Labour Party is, has kind of is being run um, by the left. Um, and this time um, it's the left is actually totally in control. Um, in the early 1980s, they they kind of were getting close. Tony Benn stood um, for deputy leader, but just lost. So they never quite got as far as Jeremy Corbyn. And the people that, that left in the early 80s, you could say they're comparable with with at least some of those that have left the party um, just just recently. You know, they're on, on the right of the party. You'd say there were social Democrats. You'd say there were people that wanted to try to make reformed capitalism work rather than completely transform everything into into a kind of socialist economy. So there are there are definitely parallels um, within the Labour Party. But the thing I'd, I'd say is the parallels are only uh, only go that far uh, within the party itself, because then in the early 1980s, you had Margaret Thatcher and she was doing all kinds of stuff um, and wasn't necessarily the most popular of figures um, at that point. But she was leading a kind of united, coherent Conservative Party. And while a lot of people had misgivings about the programme that she was going to be applying in government, they, they kind of recognised that she was at least effective in doing it, you know, that she, would, she, she could run a government. So there was some kind of grudging respect and that she was actually dealing with quite a few issues that many people had had been identified in the 1970s. Like, for example, um, people thought the unions were, were too powerful, that, you know, government was maybe a little bit too big. And and she was doing something about it. Um, whereas today we've got Theresa May, <laughs> yes, <laughs> who is by no means a Margaret Thatcher. She might in her dreams wish to be, but she's, she's got a divided Conservative Party. There is a crisis that's going on, the Brexit crisis, and she doesn't appear to be handling that very well. So so when, when people are asked, who do you think is the best prime minister, um, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, or don't know, don't know often comes top. So... So, so, so the context in which this split has been made, um, actually, there are grounds for thinking they may do better than the SDP did. Right, because I mean, the the, the last time it, it was sixteen years of Conservative government kind of followed the Labour split. Now, was that was that? I mean, as you said, there were there were many reasons. But do you think that uh, from the Labour point of view, do you think the split kind of weakened? Labour's chances dramatically at taking on uh, Thatcher, or do you think that again it wasn't wasn't such an important fact? Oh, I think I think when you le- when you lose, um, you know, that it may not be big in number, but when you lose, um, you know, a proportion of your of your own MPs who are saying extremely negative things about 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 the party, it doesn't look good. It never does look good. And certainly in the in the early 1980s, because the SDP were formed in 1981 and then there was a general election of 1983 and the Labour Party just lost shed loads of votes, shed loads of votes um, to to the SDP, which which made an alliance with the Liberals uh, uh, at that point. There were two separate parties. So um, and in the 1983 election, um, the SDP Liberal Alliance came within 700,000 votes of taking over Labour's total vote. So they came really close to becoming the second in terms of votes, the second party. Um, Although in terms of seats, they only got 23 and Labour got two, over 209 because we've got a ridiculous electoral system, which doesn't uh, which doesn't reflect um, votes cast. Um, so 
and and the other thing about 1983 is that Thatcher got a huge landslide in terms of seats, even though her vote went slightly down because she didn't lose that many votes to the SDP Liberal Alliance. So um, so in this, yes, you can say that the SDP kind of split massively um, affected the Labour Party. Now, you could people have argued about whether, well, did, did people abandon Labour for the SDP because of the SDP? Or would they have voted Tory if the SDP hadn't existed? Or would they have voted Liberal or whatever? The, the problem for the Labour Party in the early 1980s was many people thought it was too left wing. And also it was a divided party with, I mean, everybody loves Michael Foote, but an incompetent leader, perceived as an incompetent leader, right? So those those were deep set problems. That was one reason why the SDP was formed, because those people that had been in the party said, hang on a minute, we can't take this anymore. Uh, we're mad as hell and we can't take it anymore. So we're going to form, form the SDP. And and so there's similar, there's, there are parallels with, with now. Um, and but although it's far too early to say, really, I mean, the extent to which the independent group, which isn't even a political party yet. So it hasn't got candidates. It hasn't in, in constituencies. It hasn't made an arrangement with the liberals, which it very probably will do. So we don't know how things are going to stack up whenever there's an election, which, of course, we don't know when that's going to be. But if they do um, create themselves into a party and get get together with the liberals, at the very least, even if not very much happens, at the very least, they will probably get enough votes to deny the Labour Party, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party at least, um, the chance of becoming government. I, I think we can we can basically say now that there will be no Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government after the next general election. I don't. I don't. I, I always get these things wrong, but I think I'm I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm as definite as as anything that that will be the case. Now. Um, there has been a poll recently um, that if Jeremy Corbyn stopped being Labour leader, then Labour would probably win. Uh, but if Jeremy Corbyn remains Labour leader in the context of there being this group, an alternative to Labour, which is which aren't the Tories, um, then Labour would would lose. I mean, you know, that's all, all kinds of health warnings come with that. But yeah, short short answer, which is really probably how we should have done this. Short answer is. <laughs> Um, Jeremy, a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government is essentially that prospect is just just wave goodbye to it. And um, I mean, one interesting thing that you're talking about, sort of in the '80s, obviously that uh, people were concerned that Labour were were too left-wing, which I know is is uh, an issue, especially in the press at the moment. That's where a lot of the complaints are coming from. Um, but obviously, there was an interest in in centrism then. I mean, do you feel like uh, you wrote an article uh, I read on the on the University of Nottingham Politics site that you said um, I think you wrote that last year about Labour's critics should go back to their social democratic roots. Um, do you still believe that this year? I mean, because obviously there's still a big backlash against austerity and the independent group with their lack of policies have already, a couple of them have said that they <laughs> backed austerity you know is it is it um is a kind of centrism stance dangerous uh in a way and do you think that they should go back to social democratic roots as, as you previously have said well um first thing i don't think social democracy is centrism that's something that um, a lot of jeremy corbyn supporters say because they you know that they're, they're, they're on the far they're on the left, right? far left, whatever left. They're on the left, and and what and and, and they have done it, done their best to say that social democracy is finished, um, and is centrism, and the old and and people like Owen Jones have you know banged on and said it's either socialism or barbarism. You know, you are it's either Jeremy Corbyn or or 
you know, the far right in this country. Um, and, and there is no there is no middle anymore. If you go with the middle um, or the centre left, then you're basically endorsing the far right, the right wing, whatever. So so there's been there's been a very and quite, you know, quite firm and very, very clever um, kind of attempt to dichotomize British politics so that Jeremy Corbyn's on one side and everybody else is on the other. Um, my view of social democracy um, is is that you know social democrats uh, are people that have got their issues with capitalism. They they want to reform it. They see it has to be reformed in different respects. So they're not neoliberals, um, which again people like Owen Jones would would probably say they they are. Um, they're not liberals. They, you know, capitalism is something that you can use, but it isn't perfect. And how do you how do you make society more equal? Because social democrats, if there's one thing that that they agree with, at least in theory, is is the need to make society more equal. So, and you know, how are you going to do that? You need government, government in different respects. That doesn't mean you have to nationalise everything, but it does mean that you maybe improve education, health, all kinds of welfare stuff. You know, you use government in an active way. Um, so I don't see that as being centrist. I see that as being centre left. Um, it's and it's and it's a kind of um, it's a tradition of the Labour Party, which um, is very respectable to provide to many of its leaders, um, most of its leaders. Um, and I would controversially include Tony Blair in that in that one. Um, but he was a, he was a right wing. I would say he was a very right wing social democratic um, party leader. And he'd been brought up in the era of Thatcherism. You know, when privatisation seemed to be a vote winner. I mean, British politics had been transformed to the right in the 1980s, partly because of the SDP split, partly because Labour went so far left, it kind of abandoned the electorate to Thatcherism, arguably. Um, but so he was kind of schooled in a way of thinking about politics, um, which maybe with a, with with a banking crisis um, looked a bit bit passe and maybe sh- like maybe the social democrats that'd be my argument that was my argument social democrats should have really responded to that in a more active way um or done it like ed Miliband. go go in that direction but do it more competently because ed Miliband, god love him was 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 not the greatest of communicators um of the argument so i i'd see ed Miliband as a kind of as a social democrat as a kind of person who um Try to use, try to present government as a positive thing. Had his criticisms of capitalism. Didn't think it was like, you know, you had to completely destroy it, um, but but you had to change it in, in significant ways with the object of making Britain a more equal society, but also a more productive, economic, economically productive society. So so yeah, who knows what the um, the people that have formed the independent group from the Labour Party, what direction they're going to go? Clearly, they didn't listen to me. Because I said you should, you should, <laughs> you should, you should stay and and fight, but but you need to rethink um, your own politics. You know, you've been kind of schooled in the Blairite way of thinking, but that's that was appropriate for the 1990s. Um, it, it, you know, you, you you can be a social democrat and be a little bit more left wing. You know, you you don't you don't you don't become a Marxist just because you think, well, hang on a minute, maybe we should take the railways. You know. In, into state hands, maybe that would be the best way. Let's let's have a look at that because um, the present the present system, for example, is, is not exactly great. I, I I live in Manchester. Northern Rail is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And 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 the promise of one of the promises of Thatcherism and, and neoliberalism was give it to the market. You know, because you know, obviously British British Rail was not was not a great success. It was pretty pretty poor on, in state hands. And so their argument was well, it can only be better under the market. Well. Arguably, there are having improvements, but also some terrible, terrible things. Um, so we need maybe government 
to, to, to step in more. But you can be a social democrat and say that. And and actually, many of the things in Labour's manifesto a social democrat could 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 sign up to. So um, so no, I'm. I'm firmly of the opinion that if you're a social democrat, it doesn't mean you're a centrist. Owen Jones might call you a centrist, but Owen Jones is wrong on so many other things. I think, I think you know, <laughs> he's wrong on this one too. Can, can I just ask, for my sake and for the, and for probably some of the listeners' sake as well, I've seen um, you've, you've explained uh, so, social um, uh, dem- democratism to, to me. Then that was fantastic. But I've heard that Jeremy Corbyn uh, be described as a democratic socialist. So what is the what is the difference? Because I find that hugely confusing when it's the same <laughs> words but reversed, and and they don't mean the same thing. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's it's. Basically, a democratic socialist is someone that doesn't want to be defined as a social democrat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best definition. <laughs> and what, 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 it, what, it, what it means in, in actual concrete practice, um, I really don't know. I mean, go, go, going back to the early 1980s, um, with, the, with, the, with the creation of the Social Democratic Party, that created all kinds of nightmares for people who remained in the Labour Party and were also social democrats. So what they had to do was say, no, I'm not a social democrat. I'm a democratic socialist. And, and <laughs> all they did was just change the way that they described themselves. So but if and, and I've seen people who have described themselves as democratic socialists in the Labour Party who are I think, no, you're not. You're, you're a social democrat. So this is an argument that, you know, what what, what I suggest to your listeners is they they then if they haven't already, they enroll on the politics course at, at one of Britain's leading universities. <laughs> I, I can't I can't name which one I'm meaning because. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to advertise, but but yeah, just it's 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 one it's one for the seminar room to kind of break break down and what what do people really mean? But in practice, yeah, it's just it's the term, and so I, I can understand the confusion. <laughs> m- m- more likely, I would see Jeremy Corbyn just being a socialist. I'm, I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn would just call himself a socialist. Um, so whether that helps clarify matters, I don't know. But all you need to do is just see what they stand for and then you make up your own mind. That's that's definitely sounds a lot more sensible. Um <laughs> I wanted to I, I wanted to ask as well because I mean you know one of the big things that Labour's always said is that we are a broad church um and it's yeah. gone through sort of truly really dramatic political changes um especially since the 80s but probably uh, throughout I mean do you think that a party uh, and sort of across political history in the UK can a party kind of maintain its its electoral chances if it is a broad church or is it better when they're kind of unified on a strong sort of particular ideology like the conservatives have been in the past not not now but you know in the previously have been mm. well both well both of our two big political parties are like broad churches if only because we've got this peculiar electoral system which rewards it's it rewards two parties if, if you're a third party or you know if you leave one of the existing parties your fate is is isn't going to be great it's you're not going to be given much much of a chance by, by a two-party system unless you start to take votes equally off the two main parties which maybe this this new group will maybe it won't who knows um but but they are they are they have to be you know so basically they're marriages of convenience both these parties because each element um usually each element within it knows that if if they split off they're screwed so they all have to stay together and keep the house effectively because then then maybe they've got a chance of getting into government so so labor historically this is a little bit of a history lesson labor historically was formed um principal object was to defend the trade union interest in parliament it was like a little pressure group um with with the liberals and the conservative parties being the two main parties but it's 
but it kind of started it was always had you know socialists it had social democrats it had intellectuals it had all it wasn't just a party of the working class and the trade unions but it had all these different kinds of elements and and when it became like the second party of government um in the 1920s quite a few liberals joined as well um and so it's always been um a kind of collection of of different points of view there have been people who have been you know to 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 all intents and purposes communists in the party and people who have been really very 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 right-wing racists you know i mean it's 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 had a big a big broad kind of um collection of people of views that are often more at odds with other parties you know if they're members of other parties so so the broad church argument is is kind of right and and if they can all be kept together sort of focusing the, in in one direction um then 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 that, that's a viable organization now you need you need um a general agreement on, on what what the basic problems of society are and and the solutions but you also need a leader who can just about keep everybody happy keep and also going in 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 one particular direction um now what's happened to the Labour Party more recently, and they have, you know, and there have been splits in the party, not only in the 80s but in the 1930s. Lots of threats of splits as these different groups thought, "No, I can't, can't, I can't keep, I can't keep in this party anymore. I've got to leave." Or they just then they just decide, "No, no, we better, we better stay." And um, what's the interesting about what's happening in the Labour Party today is since Jeremy Corbyn um, became leader, and during the course of the campaign in 2015 to elect Jeremy Corbyn leader, um, there was an influx. Of, of of new members, um, some of whom had left um, under Tony Blair, some even under uh, under Neil Kinnock. Um, you know, people who were quite left wing but thought the party had, you know, gone gone too right wing. They they came back, and others from other parties on the far left who saw Jeremy Corbyn as as the chance to turn the Labour Party into a true socialist party. You know, um, that would really instead of reforming capitalism, instead of, as, as they would see it, tinkering around the edges or even as they saw about Tony Blair, just selling the soul of the party to capitalism um, and making society maybe a little bit more equal. But they should have done much more. They they wanted a, a party that's going to be a fully fledged socialist party. And and if the, and and if the cost of that was that other people would leave. Well, that was a price worth paying. And and today, um, I mean, I see on Twitter and you know, we don't know how representative Twitter is of, of the general view, obviously. But there are there are people who are fully fledged Jeremy Corbyn supporters in the party who are saying, well, why don't they, you know, I'm fed up with these people. Why don't they just leave and at least clarify things? And and if those people go, if these people, you know, these social Democrats, as I, as I would see them, leave, then that is that is a group of people who who are kind of necessary within the broader coalition because a lot of Labour members have always wanted to create a socialist society, but but their views are kind of at variance with a lot of people who might be persuaded to vote for Labour who are a bit more moderate, um, and it's so this is the balancing act that has been the Labour Party for for many years, which has sometimes gone off the rails and mixing my metaphors there, but. Um, sometimes kind of hit the buffers and need, needs to be reset um but once labor really only represents a certain part of the left or the and the center left then it starts to lose uh voters and and although i mean if some people say ah about 2017 jeremy everybody said that about jeremy in 2017 well I, my, my my comeback on that would be 
actually Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto was quite moderate. It wasn't as radical as, as he would have wanted it to be. And also Theresa May, remember her? Um, terrible campaign, Liberal Democrats, terrible campaign, appalling leader. Um, are we going to get those circumstances again? Was, was that about Jeremy Corbyn? Or was it Jeremy Corbyn just happened to be in the right place at the right time? So, so yeah, Labour, Labour has historically been this broad, vociferous coalition, often at each other's throats, but generally going in the direction of reform, greater equality when it can. Um, and that, that, that's the price of, of, of our electoral system. Um, I mean, Tony Blair, um, when he was um, opposition leader and he was having all these talks with Paddy Ashdown, who was leader of the Liberal, Liberal Democrats at this time, about kind of creating a bit of an arrangement to try to kick out the Tories before 97. Um, in, in his diary, um, Paddy Ashdown records Tony Blair saying he was basically in favour of electoral reform. So we can, you know, have more proportional representation because that would be a good way of getting rid of my, far, my hard left, and they can they could go into a party they really want to be in. So now the boots on the other foot. That's what the that's what the Jeremy Corbyn people kind of want. Why don't those people go, um, and then then we can have a proper socialist party. And we'll be back with Stephen in a minute, but first. I consider myself fairly left-wing, but you know, the kind of left-wing where I want freedom of speech, but I also want a lot of people to shut the fuck up. I hate workplace exploitation and inequality, but I also really like trainers and I have an iPhone. I'm terrified by climate change, but I also drive a car and I fart fairly often. And the Conservative policies that have led to deaths and a huge rise in poverty genuinely make me upset every day, but if they ever stop being in government, I'll suddenly have to write a lot of new jokes and I'm so tired, I'm really not sure I'll manage it. Life and personal political views are, on the whole, complicated, and I'd wager a bet that most people's actual positions are a big murky grey area, you know, a bit like the House of Lords. But discussing left-wing to centre-left to centre politics right now seems to draw people firmly into one of two camps, which, as mentioned in this week's interview, is sort of necessary, but at the same time political self-harm, and oh god, why is none of it easy? So this week, what with Brexit news being boring as ever, I thought I'd make everything worse, and I'd give a quick rundown on both the recent and not-so-recent problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
which is one of the things causing major rifts between all the different parts of the left-wingers. And this is going to be from a purely fact and report-based stance, um, which means if you think Labour anti-Semitic, it's not going to change your mind, and if you think they aren't, it also won't change your mind. I should also point out that I'm not really qualified to speak on this in anything other than the reports and numbers-based way, as my Jewish heritage stops at my dad, who was brought up Jewish, but after he married my mum, who was brought up Catholic, they both gave up on it all because it would have really ruined weekends. What I would recommend, though, is going back to episode 96 when I speak to writer and actor Marlon Solomon all about what anti-Semitism is, the fine lines between that and being anti-Israeli government, and more, all of which is sadly still relevant. So, my unqualified view is that it's important to remember that nuance exists, and this is one of those opposite of fun situations where it's entirely possible that both anti-Semitism does exist in Labour and needs to be dealt with, and at the same time it's being used by some groups to attack the party. Wait, where have you gone? <laughs> okay, come come back, let me vaguely try to explain. There's really not enough jokes in this bit. Anti-racism campaign Hope Not Hate published their State of Hate report last week, which pointed at a very concerning rise of the far right thanks to idiots like shaved potato Tommy Robinson, skin wrapped around the Daily Mail comments section Katie Hopkins, and a group who are to political campaigns what the Ebola virus is to weight loss plans, leave.eu. The report also mentioned a worrying rise in Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, something that's been scaled up by Sajid Javid, which is easily the harshest way he could rebel against his parents ever. The whole report is interesting and depressing, and largely points to how everything being fucked up kind of means everyone is being fucked up. So, you know, paraphrase it a bit. It's very worth a read. But for this bit, I just want to mention the section on anti-Semitism. Hope Not Hate mentioned four groups where this type of racism is prevalent on the left wing. One is a small group of people who display very extreme, often violent anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, which is right up there for me as one of the most stupid ideas ever. No human being is smart enough to have faked such an atrocity. Can you imagine the organisation that I take? Chris Grayling can't even get enough lorries in Kent for a trial run of a no-deal. The Holocaust, depressingly and upsettingly, definitely, definitely happened. Then it says that there is a large group of people who engage in conspiratorial anti-Semitism, i.e. believing the Rothschilds or other sort of Jewish millionaires, uh, aka George Soros, people like that, they believe that they run everything, which is, again, completely nuts. I mean, most people can barely multitask as it is. If you haven't seen anyone trying to text and walk, how the hell would you run everything? I mean, if somehow the world all goes topsy-turvy and it turns out that one or two people of Jewish heritage are somehow ruling everything ever, then fair play to them for pulling it off. I'd be fucking knackered. Then there are activists who use anti-Semitic language when discussing Israel or Palestine, and then the largest group are people who deny anti-Semitism on the left exists at all. And of course, there's also a large amount of anti-Semitism from far-right accounts and sites too, all of which is growing at quite a disturbing rate. A parliamentary report into anti-Semitism in the UK in 2016 was along very much the same lines, and in terms of Labour noted that Corbyn is an active campaigner against racism but felt he hadn't done enough to curb anti-Semitism, nor did they think the Commission Chakrabarti report did enough uh, to comment on differences between racism and anti-Semitism or had any clear definition of what anti-Semitism was, but it also concluded that every single political party has bad apples, or as I like to call them, bapples, and that tackling anti-Semitism in Labour wouldn't get rid of anti-Semitism altogether, but no party can afford to be complacent. Then the report also pointed out back in 2016 that the Lib Dems were pretty bad at anti-Semitism too, as they kept a councillor in their party, David Ward, who said many, many anti-Jewish things. But I guess their concern in the Lib Dems was that if they got rid of someone, they wouldn't have had enough players for their 5 side team. 
Obviously, that parliamentary report was two and a half years ago, and obviously the Hope Not Hate one is far more recent. And also recently, on February the 11th, Labour's General Secretary Jenny Formby released all the data on disciplinary cases due with anti-Semitism within their own party. It stated that out of 673 accusations that had occurred over the past 10 months, it led to 96 suspensions, 12 expulsions and 6 received sanctions, with 220 cases not breaching party rules, which now adhere to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Code, and overall, all the ones where people are actually guilty of doing anti-Semitic stuff according to Labour relate to about 0.08% of Labour members. So 0.08%, that's kind of tricky to say that amount is institutional or really endemic of the party, unless you count those who say it isn't a problem at all, which is hard to calculate or definitely accuse. But look, it is there, and as John Landsman, chair of Momentum, said publicly this week, it is still too many people. Corbyn has reacted sloppily to it all this past week, replying to a Sky News reporter's list of Jewish people who've condemned him by saying that he knew some Jewish people that hadn't, which is very much the lamest of all defences. Ah yeah, some of my best friends have seen a Jewish person on TV before and didn't turn it off. Then there was how long it took them to adapt the full IHRA code, which the Conservatives also hadn't done either, the mural, the comments on a video from 2012, Ken Livingston shouting Hitler at everyone like a niche historic Tourette's, Nashar's Facebook posts and so on and so on and so on, or the fact that it's taken over two years for them to really get a move on condemning it. Now, for the other side of things. Of those who've used anti-Semitism to criticise Labour this past week, Luciana Berger has probably suffered the worst abuse with thousands of and thousands of anti-Semitic attacks on her. Two of the main offenders of this were a neo-Nazi called Joshua Bonehill Payne, which I guess is his real name, but I mean, really? You're not even going to try and hide the Naziness? You may as well be called Henry Nazi Fascist. Fucking hell. Um, he was sentenced to two years of prison for the abuse that he gave her, and a right-wing extremist called John Nimmo got a 27-month sentence. And of course, that didn't mean that she hasn't had abuse uh, from people who are Labour supporters, and the same with Labour MP Ruth Smith, but it's also a big indication of growing anti-Semitism that has been reported all over the world by predominantly far-right activists in Europe and the USA. And a report in the Guardian paper stated that violence against Jewish people, while it has risen due to an influx in Europe of migrants from Arab states, is mostly due to far-right supporters more than absolutely anyone else. There's also independent group member Joan Ryan and chairperson of Labour Friends of Israel, and Ryan said the Labour Party was infected with the scourge of anti-Jewish racism when she resigned last week. In 2017, though, she accused a Palestinian solidarity campaign supporter of abusing her with anti-Semitism by suggesting Labour Friends of Israel was a way to get a job in a bank. But the entire incident was filmed by Al Jazeera News for their documentary on the Israeli government's influence on British politics, and the footage actually shows the PSC supporter said no such thing. Ryan reported her to the Labour Party for the former investigation, and then she was cleared. The programme Al Jazeera was making, The Lobby, also showed footage of an Israeli embassy officer discussing a plot to take down British politicians, which led to the officer in question resigning from their position and Corbyn writing to Theresa May for an inquiry into his activities, as did an unnamed Conservative MP, with concerns about the officer's links to Conservative Friends of Israel and Labour Friends of Israel and their attempts to affect policy. So is Ryan really concerned about anti-Semitism within Labour, or does her house need another extension? Who actually knows? So, uh, overall, that was a very sort of bite-sized chunk, but is there anti-Semitism in Labour? Yes. Is it endemic in the party? At 0.08%, it kind of depends on your view of endemic. Is it being dealt with? Yes. Quickly and efficiently enough? Probably not really. Is growing global anti-Semitism a concern? Yes, hugely. Does everyone that left Labour last week definitely give a shit? Difficult to say. Is any of this clear? Not really. Does it help or was it remotely coherent? Unlikely. Will it probably need to come up again in a year's time? Uh... And now, back to Stephen. Yeah, it's... Uh, but then, of course, yeah, like you said, you have the issue of... Well, we, ha we have first past the post, and so 
any kind of situation where we have several different smaller parties is gonna is gonna be quite messy. I don't think we're ever gonna be like a European country with a kind of broad coalition government, are we? That doesn't seem possible. Well, we've had well, we have had coalitions in in the past, despite first past the post. Obviously, the the twenty ten. 2015 one um but yeah um we we have a we have a political system which um uh, political scientists call a majoritarian system um not a consensual system we've basically we, we've got a system which which the winner takes all um and it, and it almost creates a sense of conflict between the two parties um that is completely unnecessary and and other another another european countries have got a proportional system where it's taken as red that you will have to form a coalition. You know, you know the, the end point of, a, of, a, of all of all, of all election campaigns is a couple of days or a couple of weeks, or in the case of Belgium, a couple of years. Um, how to, how are we going to form a viable coalition government? And that creates agreements. You know, that creates, well, you say this, we say that. How are we going to finesse all this? Rather than, you know, with our system, although it hasn't quite worked out the last the last couple of elections, um, or two. Well, 2015 did, but then she threw it away. Um, that, you know, so long as I get around about 42, 43% of votes cast, I'm probably going to form the next the next government. I can do whatever the hell I want. And that's essentially the, the, the nature of the, the British political system. So, yeah, when as soon as you get through a third party or we have you know we've got the SNP don't forget them um as soon as soon as we get sort of significant third or fourth parties then it becomes more of a lottery um and sometimes you know maybe one of the parties which can hold its vote together does become the majority party in the commons but even but with like 30% 35% of the vote and um so it all just becomes a lottery so um so, yeah, the independent group, I, they haven't said anything about it yet, but I would strongly suspect at some point they'll probably come out in favour of proportional representation because that's what you do when you're a third party. <laughs> of course. Um, I, right, so I want to ask you a question. I'm fully aware that this is the uh, the hot topic and, and uh, d- difficult subject at the moment, but obviously uh, the several independent group M- um, MPs have said that Labour is institutionally racist. Uh, Chikramun has said this morning, constitutionally racist. Um, looking back through history, you said that there were previously Labour members that were racist. Is, is that the case? I mean, part of me wonders, is that not the same for all the political parties because of Britain's history? We've recently had the Winston Churchill thing come up. Is it not the case for all that all our political parties are institutionally racist in some way or another? Well, um, when given that, that, that you know, unfortunately, um, we live we live uh, in a society where there are racists uh, of different kinds and and have historically lived. You know, Britain has been a society where there have been a horrendous number of racists. I mean, we are living in a time, fortunately, where there are fewer people of racist opinion than, than ever before. But that doesn't diminish the problem. Um, you know, given that and given that political parties, uh, big political parties reflect at some level society, um, then then even a party like the Labour Party, which has historically been committed to equality, class equality, but also racial, racial equality, gender equality. Um, despite all of that, it will have its share of, you know, sexists, racists um, and, and whatever. Um and and they, you know, Labour has historically struggled with with that fact, and also that it has to appeal to a proportion of the electorate who are racists if it wishes to 
form a majority government. And that was something that Labour struggled with, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, over, over black immigration. You know, it was formally committed to, to racial equality, but that the leaders knew that if they banged on about that too much, then it might lose some votes to the Tories. And guess what? When they when when they when they were defined as a party that was, you know, in inverted commas, soft on black immigration, it lost votes to the Tories. Um, but but many, you know, a significant portion of its own members were actually racist too, all at the same time. So we've got we've got a peculiar situation situation. I mean, you know, and, and that's not to diminish the fact that the Conservatives were stuffed full of anti-Semites and racists and and all kinds of um people of, 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 of vile prejudice views as well, if not more so. Um, but we're, we're living in a very, for the Labour Party, a sort of paradoxical and unfortunate time um, in, regard, in, in regard to anti-Semitism. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say um, that it was an institutionally anti-Semitic party. I, I'm, I'm not qualified to judge it on, on those terms. But, but Jeremy Corbyn's leadership has brought in a number of people who, because of their politics, express themselves in anti-Semitic terms, in anti-Semitic tropes. And it's it's largely to do with Israel. It's largely to do with their idea that that Zionism is 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 an imperialist ideology, is a racist ideology. And because because they see it as part of the international system which favours America, capitalism. I mean, they see it in those terms. Um, and and some and, and the best case for those people is that they inadvertently use anti-Semitic tropes uh, because of their enthusiasm for the Palestinian cause, right? And to def- and and obviously, I don't think anybody in the Labour Party, even those people who have left the Labour Party um, and accuse it of being anti-Semitic institutionally, would deny. That, that what's going on um, in Israel um, with, with the Palestinians is not good, right? Um, now, the, the worst case is that these people on the left who focus on the issue of Israel um, are doing it because they are anti-Semitic. And so there's people and there's people in between the two. And I, I've, I've seen evidence of both. So um, and the problem is for Jeremy Corbyn is that many of those people who are on that spectrum are many. I mean, are, are many, many of them are his actual supporters. And, and he himself is implicated in that thinking. And I was very reluctant to see Jeremy Corbyn as anti-Semitic. I was thinking, oh, yeah, he doesn't quite mean it. He's associating with Hamas and calling them friends because of his view of Palestine. And he hasn't quite clocked the fact that Hamas are horribly anti-Semitic, you know, I mean, in a racist way. Um, Always downplayed it in his own mind because of the greater cause that he believes, you know, the Palestinians, they're being oppressed, so we should overlook that for a little bit. But when when he said about Zionists, they didn't really understand, you know, English irony. And when and when you know, when when many people say Zionist, they mean Jew. And he was basically saying, you know, on that read, on my reading and the reading of many others, that Jews don't get English irony because they're not really English. I began to wonder whether he was consciously or unconsciously guilty of anti-Semitism. And and if that's true, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy for people to sort of question that. But if that's true, um, then he, as a leader, is not well placed to actually root out 
anti-Semitism in the Labour Party when it is when it manifests itself. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's institutionally anti-Semitic, but there are lots of questions to be asked about how Labour has dealt with the issue, how it's processed things and whether whether the leader of the party is really that bothered by it. You know, I mean, the extent to which he's kind of thinks, well, it's not really that much of a problem. It's a bit unfortunate in some few cases, but it's not really an issue. And by the way, the people that keep going on about it, they don't like me anyway. So probably they're using it just to undermine my leadership. Um, and, you know, I'm not entirely sure that some people who shout anti-Semitism aren't doing that. But that's like in the margins. Um, I think the people like Luciana Berger, Berger um, that that's a slam dunk, big, you know, headline case of her being victimised um, by anti-Semites. Sure, I, I, and I, well, cause I'm curious as well, and I don't mean to sort of skirt around the the anti-Semitism issue by any means, but but I remember with uh, when Edmund Obama was charged, there was the immigration controls mug that kicked off lots of concerns about racism uh, under Blair and Brown. There were there were starting to be issues with the way in which asylum seekers were treated, and you know there were various things that came through, and I wondered if that's. Um, you know, when people are saying that they're institutionally racist, obviously the the big um players on the anti-Semitism at the moment. But there is there have been moments throughout that you look at and go, this is a bit concerning for a party that's meant to be about equality. Oh yes, I mean yes. If you if you cast the net a bit wider, there have been um, well, like I say, you know, if, historically um there have been definitely problems um for the party to confront both because of its members and because of um many voters and, and what their attitudes are to, to to the issue of of racial difference most 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 definitely um and while I wouldn't say that the the response of the party has been institutionally racist um I mean I I wouldn't say that the, the Labour Party muck um, that, that caused so much of a fuss uh, amongst the left in particular, Diane um, Abbott, you know, went on Twitter um, saying it's like the worst possible thing it could do to, to, to issue a mug, which suggested that Labour would have controls on immigration. Um, now, um, the irony is, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party is, is committed to Brexit and to, um, you know, basically... Um, being against the free movement of labour with the EU. Um, so which that, that's kind of what the, the Ed Miliband mug was all about, ironically. Um, so, yeah, as, as a party, um, Labour has, has struggled um, to live up to its formal commitment to equality um, and, and, to, but also, um, and, and to reconcile that with, with, with the fact that it needs to win votes to get into power. And I'm not saying that it all the time has made the right decision or it's made the right principal decision so yeah the labor party as a like i said earlier you know as a, as a big party um one of the main parties it will reflect the dilemmas of the society in which it is placed and like like the society in which we, we live um sometimes it doesn't get the right answers but i don't know that institutionally um, racist is is something that I would easily attach to the Labour Party um, today. Sure, I mean, I guess also in in in, in a way that uh, you know you are if you are the party for equality as opposed to say the Conservatives, you're probably judged more harshly for any any slight moment when you're not as opposed to uh, 
for example, uh, the Conservatives who have had quite a lot of issues of racism for many years and still do with Windrush. You know, but but it's almost like because Labour campaigned against it, therefore it's worse when they do it. Yes, abs- 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 absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, if, if Labour's got an issue with anti-Semitism at the moment, the Conservative Party has got quite a bit of an issue with Islamophobia, you know? Um, and, and that's and that's the other thing. I think that is that is a kind of political reality check that, that those that do criticise the Labour Party, not just on this issue, but on other issues too, at least historically, at least until Jeremy Corbyn, you know, it's like, well, you should be doing more of this, you should be doing more of that. And and then in a but in a two-party system, when you've got the Conservatives, um, that if you go too far in one direction, the Conservatives are more than willing to scoop up those votes that you might lose um, by doing that. Um, then you've, you've got to kind of understand the dilemma of the leadership um, in terms of being true to its principles, but also getting into power. Yeah, not not easy, not easy at all. Um, I, I wanted, uh, I've got a couple more questions, and, and one is, I mean, just as a political historian. Do you are you finding that we're in completely unprecedented times right now? I mean, you know, there's always I know there's always a point that you can look back to. And I've heard several different historians point back to various different points of history. But I mean, are you finding sort of, uh, you know, are you sort of looking at this going, oh, this has happened before? Or are you sort of thinking, oh, my God, what is what is going on? Where do I look at? Well, it's thing is, it's one thing being a historian looking back on a period that you've got, you know, it's, and you're reading it through books and sources and and whatever. And then actually living through a time which which has which has parallels with the time in which you're looking at historically. So I would say, I mean, it's 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 a it's kind of it's too it's too glib to say, oh, it's just like um, and then say this period. But it, there are lots of I think there are some comparisons with the 1930s. Um, I mean, you know, the international economic system was in turmoil um, and there was a kind of a move um, away from anything to do with government, leaving things to the free market. And there was lots of kind of, you know, poverty rising, unemployment, um, inequality rising. And, and that's just and a sense, at least on one one side of the political spectrum, that, you know, basically you should leave things to their own devices or sort themselves out. Um, and there was also a move to the extremes, you know, uh, obviously with the Nazis in Germany, fascism, um, across Europe, but also in Britain with the, you know, the, the British Union of Fascists, as well as communism um, get, gaining support, you know, in, across the world. So so there was this, you know, big moving against against the centre, as it were. Um, and there were people, because I, I, I studied this period quite, quite a bit, there were people uh, of normally sane and rational disposition who were saying, you know, in the 1930s, democracy is at an end. You know, we have to turn to, um, to 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 dictatorships or authoritarian figures of left or right. But nonetheless, they're the successes. And people would point to Stalin, you know, in Britain to go Stalin in Russia. Yeah, that's working. Yeah, as, as we know, it wasn't. Um, or those on the right. Well, at least, you know, you might disagree with Hitler on some things, but at least he's getting things done. And and basically representative democracy um they were all saying is basically on its last legs and if we want things to change we need to go to one of those one of those two poles um or someone in between so in a way democracy you know democracy has had its problems and and the economy has had its issues and these two things i think have come together today and have been around for quite a while now like at least a decade and we're still struggling um, with how, how to how to work the matter, and the, so there, we've been here before. I mean, unfortunately, 
that <laughs> democracy was kind of saved by the Second World War. So that's uh, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, great, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not. So I'm not sure. You know whether they would have resolved all those problems um, on their own. You know, in their own terms, had there not been a war. Um, and I'm not. I'm certainly not advocating a war. And uh, but obviously Brexit. The issue of Brexit um, is 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 the issue that you. That I don't know that there is a comparison to this really that that it 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 gives you it gives you kind of it 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 makes people even more divided than they were it gives them something to attach themselves to that wasn't there before that maybe is simply revealing divisions that already existed but is dramatizing them in the most virulent visceral i wish you could think of another word beginning with v um kind of a way (laughs) violent violent (laughs) well sadly actually sadly so violent yes um and and it's it's it i i cannot think of a of a of any comparison because sometimes comparisons are quite comforting say oh we lived through that before but everything ended well i don't i don't know how this is going to end I don't know that that we've got the politicians that want to make it end or are able to make it end. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe this independent group, certainly they have aspirations to do that. I don't know that they've they've got they've got the abilities or the, or the policies that can do it. I don't know that that it's possible to do it. Um, so, yeah, it, and it's horrible. I mean, it really is horrible. I. I I only wish I was, you know, a historian of the future looking back on this and I could I could know how it ends and I would and I wouldn't feel so emotionally kind of involved in it. And it's it's like a lot of people. It's horrible. Um, And I I cannot see at this very moment in time how it's going to end. And I don't know with any degree of certainty that it's going to end well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that thing, isn't it? The the somebody said to me recently that that thing of may you live in interesting times was meant to be a sort of curse rather than an, <laughs> rather than a, yeah, you know, oh, no, a, a, absolutely, optimistic yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's it's hugely. Um, distressing uh, as i find weekly doing this podcast i do interview some people and at the end of it we go oh well we'll just fingers crossed not war or climate change fire tsunami then um yeah well so as a very last question i just i ask this of all my guests um just as a hope to kind of broaden people's information possibilities as uh, as a political historian uh, that that you know and the specifically look at labor party among other things you teach at not university what who do you go to for information who do you like to follow or read up on or are there any websites you could particularly recommend for the listeners to check out well i it's i kind of i use twitter as a as a way of getting my news um and i have to say that i don't know that there's anybody one single source that i would i would say you should go to um i i i even watch sometimes russia today rt right i think it's like bonkers it's malign. It's deliberate. It's <laughs> deliberate Putin-esque propaganda that's meant to undermine the West. Um, and I always find it amazing when Labour MPs fetch up on it. But even that um, gives you a perspective that the BBC isn't going to give you. And and you know, and I think it's completely biased or whatever. But it, but I think it makes you think, and then it makes it makes you question certainly my prejudices. Um, and then actually, in that case, reinforces my view that actually they're wrong. But it. I think a diverse number of sources, um, I think, can, can are, are the best. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, because of that, you then f- fall, fall into you know, um, certain websites that I won't name, like Squawkbox, um, that really do quite deliberately 
um, kind of distort the truth. Um, but I, ultimately, it's it's for you to work that one out for yourself if you decide that that is the case. And I, I, I most definitely have. So so I kind of I kind of pick and choose. I, I read things in Squawkbox just to just to see and just to try to work out for myself how biased they are or is there an element of truth because there will be some element of truth even in things that they do or the canary does um because because the bbc um and the, the mainstream media the you know the much much derided and hated on the left mainstream media has its biases too i don't think they're quite the biases that some people on the left think they are but everybody does so i've got the wet wishy-washy kind of liberal um view that you should just look to as many sources as possible and try and get different perspectives and make your own mind up thanks tons to Stephen for chatting with me you can find him on twitter at polprofsteve his podcast with emma bernal is called zeitgeist tapes and you can find that on all good pod apps and he's part of the faculty of social sciences at nottingham university so if you're heading there to study politics there's every chance you'll get some Stephen fielding wisdom as part of your studies but look, there is still next week and the one after and the one after until time stops or podcasts are no longer a thing because everyone is having hours of pointless content being directly into their lower abdomen or something. What I mean is I still need more interviewee suggestions for this show. Who, what, where, when, why? Well, OK, I'll sort the where and when, but do let me know who to interview, uh, what subjects you'd be interested in me interviewing people about and why, oh, why can't we ever sleep? I'm so tired. Any any tips on that would be amazing. Um, you can let me know your suggestions on all the usual methods uh, at Paul Polbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or try unusual methods like writing your suggestion on a green potato, eating it raw and whole and then hoping I'll walk past just as your stomach makes the appropriate noises for me to understand who you're suggesting before you're overwhelmed with diarrhea as always it's just it's much easier just to email it really is and that's all for the partly political broadcast podcast this week many gracious noises for listening and please don't forget to tell others about this weekly yelling condensed into a sound shell donate to the Kofi or patreon if you can and give the show a review on whatever pod apps with review system you do use or maybe just shave it into your pet and then while walking your dog cat gerbil or mammoth people will note the rss feed for the show and subscribe Big ups to Acast for housing this podcast in their School for Gifted waveforms, to my brother, the last sceptic, for doing all the musics, and to Cat Day for writing up the linear liner notes every damn week. This will be back next week when Jeremy Hunt is arrested in Turkey for referring to it on a diplomatic mission as Greece 2, a.k.a. like Greece, but not as good. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.